Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Jared Murphy. He is the author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, Our Lost Ancient History. Did I get it right? Oh, close. It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us, Discovering Our Lost History. Damn, that word discovering trips me up every time. What's important is we have to have this uh, seven times so that people remember that it's not aliens. Worse, it's us discovering our lost history on Amazon. On Amazon. <laughs> and uh, like most of my uh, listeners, I'm sure they're all familiar with you. You're probably my... Um, I've had well, you on my episode more times than any other guest. I'm sure of that. And, yeah. Uh, and, and also for my listeners, um, you're not going to hear this episode right away, but... It is actually New Year's Eve day, and uh, so this will be the last episode that I record in 2020. I think you need to put that out there. It, yeah, it, it, this is it. I mean, not that I expect 2021 to be that much different, but... No, but uh, if I get to be the capstone on your podcast for mm-hmm. the end of the year, then yeah, put that in the show notes when it does come up. All My right. 2020 last show jared it's, murphy it's not aliens worse it's us discovering the last history <laughs> so, also available at not aliens really oh yes oh yeah oh yeah that, i told you you could get a signed copy right that beautiful website where you can get a signed copy and it has a member section with exclusive content uh you can do all my bumpers all my <laughs> all, all my mid rolls i mean you got the voice for it too. Uh, I think Bornstein has a better voice. Really? Yeah, because he's like, this is Greg Bornstein. He's very smooth and velvety. Oh, it's like masterpiece theater kind of mm-hmm. public radio sort of voice. Yeah, yeah. The other night, like half of a podcast was everybody trying to do Greg Bornstein imitations. <laughs> <laughs> I well and and as you know I recorded my first podcast with him just a couple weeks ago. Yes. Which you'll be able to hear on open loops. Yeah, it should be pretty fun. Uh we blew through an hour and 40 minutes and he's like I can't believe we just killed an hour and 45 minutes without, you know, there was like so much that he wanted to get to and he's like I can't believe we didn't get there. <laughs> um well, let's just deconstruct everything known to man about our history, our future, our genetics, our consciousness, and cram it all into it. Not ninety minutes. I mean, you can't. You should be able to sort it all out by then, right? No, I, I haven't sorted it all out after this. Probably like our fifth interview, and I'm still not even close. Yeah, I've been getting to a point where it's really difficult to um, explain, but I've started explaining to some of the. Uh, either not new podcasters, but just people who are doing this for their, like, hey, it's not really a book review. We're not just talking about the book. We're talking about a research subject. And it just happens to include, oh, well, everything mankind knows. And that awakening and the paranormal, and it's all there because it's all connected. It's not separate subjects. And 
the book, I guess, handles, it doesn't resolve. It just touches on all of it because all of it's interconnected. We don't, we don't have these different vertical subjects that don't relate to each other. There's something in structured and conscious water. There's something in genetic memory. There's something in what we identify as paranormal or ghost stories or uh, second sight or I lived a past life. And there are so many connections then that then go into for people who are hooked on ancient history where you're like, okay, oh, you're talking about the Great Pyramids or are you, are you talking about megalithic structures and you're talking about ancient societies? And it's like, okay, well, it's a whole new dialogue because what we've tried to unpack, I think partially in the last five up or the time that we've been on, part of it is explaining to people that, look, we, there was a more advanced human society, which I talk about in the book, but then this society fell apart either through some giant cataclysm or a weaponized disaster, intentional or otherwise. And they did not populate the earth further, but we know that they did because there's things we've talked about for those who haven't heard, engineered soil all over the earth. There is soil that was created by the hands of man. Not, it's not random, it's, but it's in areas that we consider nomadic. And so without any evidence of a fire pit or a foundation, and even though they might still be there, there are layers around the earth where this engineered soil, uh, and we have a blind spot, not maybe entirely, but a lot of deserts around the world weren't deserts even within 6,000 years ago. So we don't have clarity on that, but we do have enough evidence of engineered soil to say there was a really large society here and they're not here now, but we do see UFOs and we do see that there were dynastic peoples like the Egyptians and Mayan and Ol Olmecs and Toltecs and Aztecs. And they all populated these old ancient megalithic buildings. And then we get stuck when somebody hears this thing about, oh, we're going to talk ancient oh, we're just going to talk old ancient societies. It's like, yeah, but they're not ancient. They are dynastic peoples that occupy these places, but they're, pe they're survivors. They're survivor cultures. They are uh, possibly no, the original nomadic people that stumbled in as a group or uh, in a single city site, and they reoccupied very advanced megalithic structures and they and they created their own cultures and those are interesting peoples but they are not the original occupiers and when somebody says oh consciousness and paranormal and and you know genetic tech and conscious water and uh, vibrational medicine and healing and what that you know the the subject of vibrational medicine is like the whole body and all the energy you're an energy being all that and uh that is usually gets handled in like a health program, but then here we are with this um, fully untold, totally kind of semi-conscious story that we've dialogued about. And it's neat because for those that maybe want to go the health direction or want to go a uh, ancient history direction, what's really important about ancient ancient history is that it appears that we had a society that really could measure waves and frequencies and energies within the human plant and animal system. And it looks like they had some sort of genetic control. They were able to not manipulate genes in a recipe, but actually program human DNA or animals. I mean, we, we're doing it now. We, you know, we've gone way beyond cloning a sheep or a horse or a, we're, we're, we're doing custom babies now. I mean, that's a thing, you know, people are 
creating genetic recipes for their children, legal or otherwise, that are uh, just tweaking. Like we want to have a kid that is more athletic or more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this this is no longer sci-fi. We're doing it now and we have 3D printers. Well, it, you know, we can stumble through this historical record with all these advanced pieces of technology and in the very, very ancient past, it appears that this society of, again, just our people, us, were able to manipulate, not half-ass or haphazard, but directly uh, input into each, into a series of DNA uh, program codes. And they did it. And here we are uh, in safe mode kind of broken 10 to 14% conscious and all deciding what podcast to listen to. And it's Gary, you need to listen to. That's right. Everything imaginable. Yeah. And hence your, your capstone on this and for the year, I feel like you have successfully named and presented what this podcast is. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And that's why you like, you're, you are actually one of the perfect guests for this podcast because your topic, like you just said, it it goes far beyond ancient civilizations. It does touch on almost everything imaginable. And then some actually, Um, you know, because new things every day come to light too, that are connected to this particular subject where archeology, span science, you know, everything is evolving and and all those new discoveries also sort of interlink with, uh, this particular topic yeah thank you and it really is for all the people out there that are pursuing this even if they come at it from the ancient histories or they come at it from a holistic or life or medicine uh perspective or or paranormal it all gets funneled into a plane where no matter what door you came through to get to this subject these subjects in the end you can't help but see because they get they and there's no way to watch one show or hear one thing without being exposed to another and it just takes an ounce of curiosity to realize you don't have to walk very far around to realize this is all connected and people might have identified something in their lifetime it's like i saw a ghost i i had this dimensional experience and i or i was in this meditation and i ended up somewhere these are all different ways individuals have triggered a genetic memory, a genetic history, a, uh, uh, a programming that may not have been theirs. It may have been a prior relative's experience and we pick it up as instinct or as a dream or as a, a deja vu or, you know, and, and then somebody might just be completely fascinated with ghosts and paranormal and know all these stories and like in any subject, there's always like a broad spectrum of like, well, that one's probably true. This one's probably a little not as accurate, uh, but the, a subject builds on itself. And between the factual stories that can give you some real insight into the phenomena of each subject, what you end up doing then is if you can just look at those, like what is the experience or what am I experiencing? And rather than placing a, a capstone of, uh, well, this is a spiritual experience, or this is a religious experience, or this is a uh, transcendental um, dimensional experience. Instead of totally labeling it, you can peel back those initial experiences and layers and go, well, hold on. Uh, there is a period of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years that it looks like 
the human race was able to terraform and manage engineered soil, not just for growing, but for uh, it's called terra preta or chernozems. There's others, but it's uh, soil that requires the human hand to mix in nutrients, uh, some through biochars, which are like burnt woods or burnt biomaterial. But it's not an accident. This isn't like somebody burned a forest and it turned out to be the perfect growing soil or there was a lava flow. This isn't what we're talking about. But this engineered soil is one example where not only is it good for growing and filtering heavy metals and carbon uh, dioxide, which are all things that we're concerned about right now and uh, different chemicals, but it's not just for growing, it's for piezoelectric, it's for interconnectivity. So this is a society somewhere in ancient times that I'm talking about, like you said, either on my site, notaliens.com, uh, in that member area, and of course in the book and what we're what we've been dialoguing about, which is important with everyone, because this is an ongoing important uh, topic for all of us that are trying to figure out where that amnesia of the human race that Graham Hancock says we're a species with amnesia, and that is a very true statement. We're we're just operating at this minimal capacity, and we don't think that that paranormal experience or that spiritual experience or that meditation or that or even something that they're learning about the past. It's like, they're just, you hit walls because we don't, we table different, even if they're alternative, we table theories rather than spending even more time. Eventually when you have enough facts, you, you can see that they become convoluted and less convoluted and convoluted and less convoluted. The more you can retain an awareness of a big picture of there's a society that was here on earth hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of years ago. And for a long, long period of time, we don't actually know. We have legends or we have stories through like the Hindu Vedas that say millions of years. And either way, we're talking about a society that could terraform the planet, move and install very large megalithic blocks to the tune of 3000 tons to very small and very precise and the devices and the machinery to make a very small or a very large, precise, multi, three, not just like four-sided, but incredibly complex polygonal stone and to move it and place it in a way that other instrumentations were used to measure and gauge. If we put a building here, this earthquake so many miles below the earth in the crust and so many miles away is going to create a frequency in a wave. Well, we need to create spheres, stone spheres. We need to create, whether they're small or big, under our cities, and we need to do it uh, within the structure. We need to create polygonal masonry. And all of that had to have not just the mystery of building those machines uh, to cut the stone and shape it so that it was razor tight, fit together, can't put a piece of paper, what have you, that these structures were built with instrumentation that could measure uh, not only frequencies and waves from an earthquake that would get canceled based on the construction method, but also what about piezoelectric properties within the soil to carry currents, to carry information, to carry knowledge, like the Nazca lines, not the big animals all over Nazca, but the Nazca straight 25 kilometer long lines why were they doing that if it wasn't like a surface antenna and they weren't just using soil they were also using plants and other animals and uh, things that weren't just random creations and 
when we back up and understand that we now are on the edge of doing things genetically. We're programming DNA to contain memories. We are understanding that memories, instincts about don't go in the dark cave, or I think that berry's poisonous. I don't know why, but I know how to use this tool. That those are programmed memories. We're, we're understanding that the genealogy through personal experience, I, there's that very famous family. I never mention them and I should uh, that they have been tightrope walkers for so long. They, they've identified a gene for it because they are specialized. And this is one of those cases where we go, oh yeah, genes are adaptive and they just random happen. Well, part of that problem is we've been discussing uh, the out of Africa theory for so long, we've forgotten what a theory means. A theory is mm -hmm. something that wasn't, it was supposed to be based on facts. And then you are supposed to develop new theories when you find new facts, not throw facts out, which have been happening in the archaeological world for a long time. And if you can't support uh, the mainstream theory, you're also, your career can be destroyed. You can be silenced a million different ways. And the problem then is, is you don't get tabled with, hey, I'm looking at an earth. There's a reason I have these abilities. There's a reason I'm, uh, I have this paranormal experience. I'm calling it a paranormal experience or I'm seeing an alien versus you're seeing a highly advanced human who is manipulating and programming his DNA so that he has the ability to sit in the cockpit of a 90 degree uh, stop on a dime and turn and go Mach 22 or more uh, vehicle. And they're doing everything through uh, sight, through skin and waves and frequencies, through eye ocular nerves that are designed. And we're, we're assuming that, well, they've evolved like, oh, well, they used to be human, but now they've evolved into another creature. It, it's hard for people to make this uh, connection that just like you go in for plastic surgery, you don't like something about your body or you had an accident and you're getting some reconstructive surgery. It's exactly that, except mm -hmm. they're doing it on, on a very um, complex genetic level. They're just saying like a good example would be the singularity is near by Ray Kurzweil. He was, uh, he holds over 200, I don't know, it could be 300 patents. Now he's considered a modern day Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, this is someone that uh, Google university, was founded on. I mean, he, Ray Kurzweil was one of the driving forces for that. He works at Google and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to promote Google, but Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near is incredibly important because it goes over nanotechnology and how that looks when you have nanofactories that are a few atoms in size and, and you can create nanobots within a nanofactory and the nanofactory can be in your bloodstream. It could be outside of you. It could be floating in the air. There's a lot of different ways to consider having uh, a connection to a level of technology that what we think of externally and crudely as a, well, you need a new heart. So we're going to chop you open and just throw in a device or uh, on a, uh, a donated heart versus we're just going to inject you with some nanobots that are going to direct themselves uh, to your heart. And they're going to just program and grow the correct cellular structure for whatever the damage is or whatever mm -hmm. the defect is and correct it. And this is technology that is in front of us. It's been in the ether, it's actually within 
uh, academic science, and it has been for over 12 or 15 years, uh, many, many more years if you look at all the sciences that made the, all this stuff happen. But the point is, we look very crudely at these different fields, and the reality is it's exciting uh, to consider that no matter what your angle is or your personal interest for anyone listening, it's an angle that will tie into uh, our uh, pl- uh, tabled rediscovery of, of the human race and possibly its origins, or at mm-hmm. least definitely thousands of years of history that we have never considered because we pretty much thought that, you know, 50,000 years ago, I keep saying that we came out of Africa, everybody was, everybody was banging rocks and uh, hunter gatherers. And that's just not what we're finding. Right. And, you know, um, recently I was just watching a show on, um, on henge builders and uh, we've touched on this a little bit before about like Stonehenge and, you know, the henge in um, New Hampshire and stuff like that. But in this show, the, um, they had found a henge that was underwater in the ocean. And uh, I forget what coast it was off of, but it was like, it was pretty far off the coast. And, uh, for it to have been built while that, that area was land would have had to have gone back something like 25 million years. Oh, wow. This was recent. Yeah. And when I saw that, I, got, I thought of you because I was like, wow, yeah, that's really yeah, interesting. We've ta- yeah, because we've talked about how the coastlines have changed. Mm-hmm. And there's almost, there, there, for everything that there is, and, that, and, and I'm looking at a LIDAR scan of Spain that's showing uh, 66 recently uncovered Roman bases in Spain that they had no idea were there. And that's recent history. We think, oh my gosh, that's a couple thousand years ago. Uh, But the conceivability of the amount of surviving megalithic blocked either structures, uh, what we consider henges or standing stones, which I really think are remnants, uh, structural, architectural, engineering elements of, of buildings that have disintegrated or been repurposed. That's what I personally think standing stones are i'm not talking about ones that were mimicked mm-hmm. always remember that human beings have come along they found something and they're like that's a cool idea let's just build more hinges let's build right. more standing stones so there's always a story to tell of a recent culture and we have so much of it we think we think it's just layer after layer after layer but a lot of what we don't know even about the societies romans or otherwise it's it's underwater and doggerland in Europe between Scotland, Ireland, and England and all the way to France was one giant continental area with the Baltic Sea being really a pond, a, a lake near Sweden and uh, Norway and all that and northern Germany. That, that was just a small lake. So was the Mediterranean. So was the Caribbean. Uh, these are areas that uh, were not um, underwater, they were above water. So what are we going to do? It's, uh, when it comes to finding a lot of wood stuff does get preserved at a certain level because there's no oxygen. However, a lot of wood things and metal things, they get eaten away, they get destroyed, but it's hard to destroy stone. 
And that's, that's another animal. And so what are we going to do with the projected zones of archaeology? And when it comes to maritime, we think, oh, well, let's go look for a Spanish galleon and gold from, you know, the doubloons and things like that. Or a World War II thing. Let's go find this battleship that sunk or this aircraft carrier. That's all contemporary. Something like what you just talked about is pretty damn exciting. Do you, do you remember uh, uh, where it was or what, is it on YouTube or is it? Uh, no, that was on, um, I think it was on the History Channel or Discovery Channel. Wow. That, that's, it, it's huge because there's so many, the way everybody ends up maintaining the narrative that is so broken is there are three ways to dismiss all the things that point to a more advanced human society on earth. Uh, one is the alternative history world constantly in the last 30, 40 years going, well, aliens helped us. And the, the reason that's a problem is because it, it creates an answer other than it's not that it's about the fact of it or the possibility of mm -hmm. aliens having come to earth. It's about, or it really advanced humans returning to earth. The issue is that you then don't consider that we are not at the epoch of the most advanced human society ever on earth, that we are actually a survivor society that has reinvented the wheel. And I know a lot of people with the end of the New Year's and just general awareness, everyone's talking about the equinox or the, or the processions of the stars and age of Aquarius and how yeah. we're at the top, you know, that we're about to reboot or, you know, the mind calendar was just like, well, look, we, they know it's a 26,500. It has nothing to do with doom and gloom. It just has to do with, Hey, it's the end of the year. Uh, this is our cycle. And it's the 26,400 and whatever year. And now it starts at year one again and the procession starts again. Uh, th those are all, um, at least as far as we know, might be part of a legend that was once part of a fact, part of a cycle in a society that was pre-flood, pre-younger pre Dryas. But we don't know that. And what we do know is that we have these different experiences and these, uh, and in the world of alternative history, it's, well, maybe aliens were here and they helped us. And it's one more filter that you then don't consider that the human race was just much more advanced at one point. And so you, you tend to, there's a field, Michael Cremo talks about this. There is a field of when you when you get into a particular research, you that you find the facts you're looking for, uh, to and so some people get so narrowly focused in on their theories mm -hmm. that they don't uh, they're not willing to entertain something else, and so that's a problem when you come across a 25 million year old, uh, you know, uh, structure, and it's not like they built it before a flood. <laughs> They didn't build it to like, oh, okay, we're ready. Here comes a tidal wave. Woo, mm -hmm. just in time. <laughs> it's gonna be for coral. Um, they did they did they didn't likely build it like that. So 
that's one bad filter. I'm talking about bad filters that allow us to not see this, but there's mm -hmm. all these facts. And if the facts don't fit current theories, it's like, we'll just throw away the fact. But uh, we use the words out of place, out of time artifacts. We say it's a mystery. We say it's a, uh, well, isn't that a one-off or, uh, oh, that's neat. There's always a tone or a philosophy placed on what's found as something that's a curio. Uh, like and one of the things I, 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 this also came into my, uh, something new that I came across because we talked about this one too, is the, you know, the Paracas, Paracas skulls. And, um, you know, and like most people tend to either think, okay, it's either alien or something like that. Um, but somebody had uh, suggested that um, we are the aliens and they are the original humans. That's interesting. Um, I never thought of it in that context. But I think it's just kind okay. of cool to switch the role and see what that looks like. Would that be? I, I guess I'm I'm busy thinking and absorbing that right now. Just imagining, you know, we got to the planet and uh, we just wrecked every species that was here, and that and and the story we tell ourselves is that, oh, the Denisovan or the Neanderthals or this other mystery human race that is now being identified in our genes is a, uh, uh, that, you know, we. We, you know we're the underdogs and uh there's there's this history but the but the truth of it is these people uh well what if we were the ones that came and conquered and uh not even really conquered maybe we we're just like an infestation <laughs> you know like a well, roach or something like that that's a little bleak it's possible um, though I, I, I mean, we do have a high capacity for reproduction and sort of a, a low capacity for sustainability. Um, well, the cacarocha. Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, we know that there's different races like the Paracas, like you're saying, is that we have almost no genetic research. You know, there's literally mummies everywhere, people, for those of you who want to do research, uh, even tissue available. Some of these, some of these, the practice have at least been reported to be at least, some of the mummies are at least 9,000 years old. That's pushing really back there. And so there is genetic information. There are things that uh, are definitely showing that we don't have a solid paleoanthropological record to say this is the progression of anything mm -hmm. we have theories but we keep again the indoctrination of theories are not facts right. and grading people on theories is ludicrous right. grade people on whether or not they know the facts uh to put together theories and so as far as like us being the alien um well we made it pretty far because if you look at the megalithic structures and the styles of buildings, I don't think those are things we took over. Mm -hmm. I think that they are part of a larger uh, human society. And I, I suspect that because also of recall, people either recalling ancient, ancient lives uh, right. that they 
a lot of times people will say, well, I lived this life. I'm pretty sure it was me. I suggest in a lot of cases that built-in genetic memory, there are two parts to it. One is a collective human consciousness. And the other part is we are, we everything's based in energy. Uh, that's not a woo-woo thing. It's just, we are vibrational medicine, holistically looking at the human race. We are not just um, mechanical. We are not just a machine. There is a, a energy system around us and with us and starting to sound like Star Wars. Um, so the, I think, uh, I think it's important to consider all the possibilities based on what we find. And it includes people having these deja vu recalls of these past experiences that might be from this more ancient time, because there's a good possibility that genetic memory is something that we store, that it's something that may not be our life experience, but it could be either mm -hmm. our ability to tap into collective human consciousness and recall someone else's experiences because they still exist, or uh, that programming is within the genomes and we all carry kind of like a disk array mm -hmm. for a computer uh, where if you don't want to risk having all your info on a right. single hard drive, you spread it out. Yeah. So it could be that because we're not fully aware or conscious of the full capability of the human race. So have, but have yeah. you tried experimenting, accessing ancient memories with yourself through hypnosis or meditation or anything to see if you have any access or ability to recall it? Uh, yeah. So for me, I haven't had any experiences. Uh, well, yeah, basically this gets into my Wim Hof experience. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had the recall of somebody else's life experience or anything like that. For me, uh, the Wim Hof method has been a way to, uh, within seconds, connect to that consciousness. I, I don't know if it's that consciousness. I, I know that it's like a light switch. I know that when you start doing the breathing technique, um, I can go sometimes it's not. And here's the other thing. I don't know how exactly to control it, but I can tell you that abilities like, uh, this is something that I haven't talked about in a while, but there is the subject of Qigong and, uh, that, that, that's that Eastern, it, mm -hmm. it manifests differently for people. And I talk about Johnny Chong and his electromagnetic abilities and how it ties into possibly the theory is nuclear cold fusion at the mitochondrial DNA level and that there's studies on it. But for me, the triggers to create these energy directions within my body and like, uh, uh, it's, it's as if, uh, the connecting what, what you sense, it is like a light switch. It's not just one sensation. It's not one feeling of euphoria or happiness or depression or anger or frustration or release or whatever. It's what I can tell you is that by practicing this method, I have seen, uh, geometric shapes, very, specific geometric shapes, colors, and not in a disorganized, I'm about to pass out. It sounds really funny. I'm tripping balls sort of way. That's not what I'm saying. But it only takes a few minutes to learn how to do the general Wim Hof breathing mm -hmm. technique. Uh, however, then you have to combine it with cold showers and also being in cold, ice cold. 
there's some there they in fact scientists have been studying this and they don't understand why this all works and we could go off into a whole conversation about it but so when i start the breathing technique it's like a it's like a switch goes off there are periods during the cycles of breathing where you exhale and i don't inhale again uh i've gone five minutes without inhaling and then it's not that you do it till you're blue in the face either. Mm -hmm. This is a method that you practice without force. You do not force yourself to hold your breath. And when I said, hold my breath, if you heard me say exhale, that is correct. I exhale and do not breathe in sometimes for five minutes. And I know people who can go longer and I know uh, that's not always the case for me, but it's not the length of time. It's the state of mind, which I feel hyper connected to everything around me, which is way beyond what you would experience just sitting and watching a television show or reading a book or really contemplating the universe or having a really good workout. It's not that you can't get super meditative about a workout or a Zen process of yoga or something like that. This is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that's not a cool effect. I'm saying that specifically this method mm -hmm. and after practicing it definitely leads you into a connectivity point then that gets you into what I I can't help but assume or think is that consciousness within the universe, or it's a collective human consciousness, it's electromagnetic fuzzy wuzzies, wherever you want to go with it. But it leads me down to a conduit where I am experiencing and sensing, hyper sensing in a very positive way, uh, not people's feelings, but everything around me with a level of dimensional clarity that is not my eyesight it is not my smell it is not my senses as i know them but it is a clarity that you can't experience unless you do a practice like this and at that point uh it goes from just the breathing technique to some exercises that take you into cold weather or cold water both either or and when you're doing the kind of meditative work that i'm talking about and then you are in a place like uh, uh, you know, where I am, it's, you know, it can be 20 below zero. So you got to picture me out of a shower. And of course, since I'm in the city, I'm in, I'm in swim, I'm in swim trunks, but I will then continue my meditative breathing. Uh, after I've already done a cold shower, after I've been doing the med first meditation, then the cold showering stuff, which, which you're practicing this technique. And then I'm sitting outside controlling my body temperature at 20 below zero or zero degrees, whatever the day is. And then I'm, I'm not just, it's not about breathing a certain way and not being cold. It's this tech, this uh, techie consciousness that it doesn't seem woo-woo once you do it. You don't have a sensation of, oh, I'm catching a wave on a chemically driven drug trip. You feel like you're present to a consciousness, not anyone in particular, but you're, everything about the world is more attached. And at the same time, like I said, when I'm doing certain portions of the technique, I'm also experiencing and controlling uh, waves of energy within my body, uh, every, from every tip of my finger to my toes, uh, currents. And it's a, it's a super trippy thing that I think everyone's going to experience a little bit differently, but many, many people have gotten into it. And I can tell you it's, it's very, 
exciting to, to for me to tell people right now that anyone can do this. Anyone should do this. It's, you know, WIM has gone all over the world and uh, it's been experimented with at universities right here, even in Minnesota, all the way to where he's from and in Copenhagen and all over the world. This is not a technique that's being hidden from people or being told that it's a mystery. In fact, that it's exact opposite. It's uh, Wim is quite famous for saying effing demystify. You don't need a prayer. These are all human abilities that we've forgotten and we, we haven't utilized. And so I'm talking about it because it is a very real methodology for you to go from going, I have this spiritual, not saying it won't be, I'm having this paranormal, not saying that you still won't call it that. I'm having these fill in the blank experiences and I have never felt anything else like it. Have you ever felt anything like that? Or how do, how do I tell you to repeat it for you? And I can tell you that doing a methodology like this, yeah, it helps you control your inflammatory response, your uh, consciously control your immune system. These are facts. These are not opinions. This is not my thought. These are things that it actually does and it doesn't cost you anything other than breathing and learning the technique. And it's not something that starts working in a month or two. It's something that starts working immediately within days or hours. And it's pretty phenomenal. And it's something that I can tell you will connect you to a level of consciousness or um, instead of using the word, I hate the word meditation because all I can think about is the first time I was ever in yoga. And somebody's like, okay, well, whatever happened to you in the day, just leave it at the door, let it float away because you're present now. And to get present now, you, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I, it would piss me off to no end. Cause all I'm thinking about is the guy that cut me off on the road or whatever. And it's like, I, just cause you told me to let my problems float away. doesn't mean they're floating away mm-hmm. and, or that I'm pissed off about something. And when you do this breathing technique uh, and, and, and again, if you do the full therapy uh, by therapy, I mean, uh, I don't know what else, the methodology, when you do the breathing and the cold uh, exposure, and again, I, I do recommend to people to explore. I have nothing to do with it. I'm not being paid to say this. I'm just telling you that you should go to the Wim Hof method. You should learn the technique like in the steps that they present it. Don't just, um, you know, you can go on a channel and internet search the Wim Hof breathing technique, and you can learn how to do it in 22 minutes. Mm -hmm. He sits with someone on a sofa and you can learn how to do it. You can do the breathing technique and you might even experience some of the stuff I'm talking about. And it'll be pretty dang amazing. And then, yeah, you could go take a cold shower or keep doing the breathing technique while you take a cold shower. But that's not like, if this is the last thing you heard and there was no more internet, I guess start there and keep experimenting. But there is a very... Uh, they have refined and developed a step-by-step technique over 60 days to do it um, in a way that ramps you up to handle uh, and be consciously control of your warming, your cooling of your body, your inflammatory response. And then there's all this paranormal human consciousness. I mean, they can't advertise that. They don't, like people talk about it in forums, people like, Hey, did you feel like you were tripping? Like you've never tripped before? Well, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's an awakening 
of abilities and techniques that date back possibly to your point, maybe millions of years to a time when whether we're the native species or not, we have collectively jumped forward and in our genes dormant mm -hmm. in our in our are these abilities that allow us uh, to to connect also to these higher co uh, conscious controls, which include you and me connecting together without the internet. So it's like kind of a a way of switching, getting ourselves out of safe mode. <laughs> Uh, what was that last part? It's like trying to, it's, it's a way of getting ourselves out of the safe mode. Absolutely. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. And, and that, that would be, uh, and it's also a way to experience. And again, I know I, I want to be respectful of everyone's personal experiences. Everybody comes from a different background. So there's a lot of people who have thought they've had past lives or or paranormal experiences or spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. and, and none of that should change for anyone listening, but you have, everyone knows that they are, that there's more to them, that there's more strength and more power and abilities. They know it. It's just, they, they may not be up there. They're humble or they're good. They're people that think it, well, it wouldn't be nice of me to say it that way, but these are things that are part of this awakening or some people are calling things right now, like disclosure, which covers everything from aliens to um, again, our actual human abilities. And what, what you can do with this technique is experience. You can go from zero if you've had none to experiencing some really crazy stuff about your body and not having it be just about you. You will know you won't, you won't, you might not be able to speak, you know, speak to anyone, I don't think. Uh, but your ability to start a practice like this, you don't have to think your way or wish your way or pray your way into the experience. The minute you start this breathing technique, no matter what your fitness level is, no matter where your dietary is, no matter where your consciousness is, if you start this technique and you follow it, you should have some pretty crazy feelings and sensations. Uh, maybe even the first time by the time you're done with a week, uh, uh, you could be seen, uh, like in my case, like you could be seeing like geometric shapes and, uh, sensing things, uh, all, uh, I don't, you know, it could, it could manifest very differently mm -hmm. for every individual, but it's, not going to be something you have to wish for. It's not going to be something you're like, well, you know, I can't run five miles this week, but you know, I'm working up to that marathon, you know, eventually I'm going to, I'm going to feel something. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, uh, in my personal experience, but also with the people I went with when I got to meet Wim Hof, cause I was there at treasure Island the very first time he ever came to America. It was just a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it's been about three years now. Uh, that he was at treasure Island in San Francisco. And that's where I was with just over a hundred people with him personally. And, and all of us, uh, uh, doing it for the first time, but I've met a lot of people who, uh, nothing, no, nothing is very far from what I'm saying about the collective experience, but I can promise it. I, it, it you'd be the first person, it, whoever tries it, if you do not have any sensations of anything going on, then, you'd be a first. I don't know anyone who can do this 
and not experience uh, a very different state. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean that you're going to transform into a Rubik's cube or, uh, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be a human being or, or, uh, whatever you are or the form you're in now, that's not what I'm saying. It's just, it's something that is, I know, thank you for letting me go on about it, but it's something worth everyone's time. And I actually, believe it or not, for as much as I've written about it or include it, I don't go on about it like this because, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I didn't know the movie was going to be as good as you said. I didn't want you to over talk about it. It was as good mm -hmm. as you said. And this is one of those things where it's like, okay, when do you shut up about, do you want to really have a transcendental crazy experience? Like you've literally never had outside of, of people who have, right. Yeah. But, you know, explaining that to people is, you know, everybody wants, to, you know, nobody wants to be told what to do. So <laughs> that's true. So, so when you do this and you experience what, what type of geometric shapes and what type of things did you, do you sense when you're, Oh yeah. They're practice? like, uh, like can you, you can feel it to me. Yeah. So like when it comes to the shapes, I guess would be the easiest. So it's like a television turns on in your head that doesn't, isn't bright. It's dark but you know, it's a screen and well, in, in a sense, it's a screen. And so the first time this happened was uh, during the part where you're doing the meditative breathing, but there's a point where you're including exercises within the breathing technique and people who do this will understand. And at, at this point, prior to getting into the cold water and some people do it. So you got you got to picture the situation for how it triggers for me. So that's why I got to explain it. And uh, I use a certain, I have a suite of music that is very, it's not a mantra. It's not super duper Tibetan repetitive, but it's music that triggers me into that state of mind. So I have a loop that just plays and I don't have to think about it. Meanwhile, there's, when you're doing the technique and when you're learning, when you're going through the program, part of what you do is you're doing the breathing technique and there's a point where you exhale and you do push-ups. and part of the push-ups, and this is not a full explanation. It's just a partial. And what you do is you exhale and you start doing push-ups. and you can get, believe it or not, to 50 push-ups without breathing. And so you've, and not only have you not held your breath, you exhaled and you are now doing push-ups. and you go, not until you force it, you go until you just do this breath intake. Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, you always take your first breath when you're doing the Wim Hof breathing technique. You take this big breath after you've done an exhale and you've held it. You take an intake for about 20 seconds. And uh, then for me, I was transitioning to a darker room, the ice cold, you know, zero degree water shower thing. And I'm continuing the breathing technique. And it was on the first exhale as I'm in this ice cold water that a black screen appears in my mind, but it's three dimensional. It's not a one, it's not a television. It's not flat. It's mm -hmm. dimensional. And a screen of orange with a reddish tint honeycombs in three dimensions appears and 
it's every direction I turn. And so as you're taking a cold shower and trying to keep your whole body iced when you're not in ice water, you have to keep turning. So it's not that I'm dizzy. It's not that I'm spinning fast. Uh, as I am slowly and carefully uh, minding my space, I'm doing the breathing technique, which includes these holds and the cold water. I think eventually you don't, ironically, you know, it's cold, but I mean, believe me, you never not know it's cold, but you're able to maintain your internal core temperature. And there's a lot of science behind how this is possible, but it happens. But while, while you're doing it, so the screen goes black, then it goes to three dimensional. When I mean honeycomb, I mean like I could step through one in my mind's eye and the honeycombs go infinitely in front of me to my left, to my right and up and down. They're just everywhere. And that's what I'm on one sense seeing, but in another sense, yeah, I know there's cold water. Uh, there's still this electromagnetic energy, this current that is, and it's not, for those skeptics out there, it's not about over-oxygenating my bloodstream or some sort of uh, uh, machine asphyxiation. That's not what, this is not, it's none of that. Mm -hmm. What what you're doing now is you're, you're in a process, I'm in a process of doing this breathing technique where I'm 35, 45 minutes in. And when you're doing this technique, um, the sensations, the, I, I'm going to use the word control, the control I feel over my bodily systems, literally pulses. I can feel a pulse go from one finger. I can, I can control not just a heartbeat, but, but a pulse, an electromagnetic pulse that I can control as it moves through my arm. I can direct it through my whole body to my other arm. I can have that pulse as you know, if you held your two, uh, maybe your, your, your fingers together, like you're contemplating, if you just put your fingertips together, I could, I can, sp I can sense, this is what I mean about uh, hyper awareness. Uh, the pulse is jumping at a rate of so many inches through my body. I know I could point to everywhere. I know it's going to land within the sensation of the pulse in my body. And as it comes around, and by the way, I can change it clockwise or counterclockwise, but when you're holding your hands together, they're not really clockwise and they're in front of you. And this current is going up through my shoulders and it's going down through my arms on the other side, but it's jumping the same distance. So because it's jumping the same distance, it doesn't just get to like, let's just say it gets to your, uh, you know, your base knuckle on your fist mm -hmm. and based on how many inches it's been jumping. Oh, well, you have another finger. Well, your other fingers, a different finger. So the first pulse is going to be at the tip of your fingers. Like there's going to be like a shock, but that's not what happens. The pulse jumps to the exact correct space from the base knuckle on my left hand to maybe mid between my third and base knuckle on my right, if it was going that direction. And then it continues. And I can, I can do that through my feet. I can do that through my body. And so you're, you're, you're seeing these geometric shapes and, and, and partially you're like, and, and that's the other thing is like, when you're doing some meditation, you have all this time to think, or you're like, 
I guess I'm going to give up that guy who cut me off in traffic. I can give that up. You're not, <laughs> when you're doing this method, you are not thinking. You don't have to worry about getting into it. You don't have to worry about being distracted. Mm-hmm. You are not thinking about what's burning. Well, unless something's actually burning on the oven. You're not, you're not thinking about being hungry. You're not thinking about being full. You're not thinking about anybody or anything. Your mind is 100% occupied as if it's in the best movie it's ever been in. You are not doing this and going, oh gosh, I got one more round. This is boring as hell. You're, that's not what you're going to be thinking. You're, you're, you're fully mentally and physically uh, engaged. And so here you are, in my case, I have these geometric shapes going on, but part of me is like kind of in a wonder state. Like part of me is looking at these things and I can sense, I don't, I'm not thinking it, but I'm feeling like where the hell am I? And what is this? And this is crazy. And wow. And what am I looking at? Like really get a look at the shapes. And then um, they're more like tetrahedrons. They're more like, uh, cause they're not just like a honeycomb cause they're three-dimensional, mm-hmm. but, but I can step through them, but I'm not stepping through them because I'm, I'm also controlling this electromagnetic aura. I don't, I'm just using that word. I'm not saying that's what it is, but it's like this current, this tempo, this beat. And there's a, a hyper awareness. Like I, it's not about like, I know I'm in the shower and I'm really cold. It's more like everything outside of yourself and where, where you're standing is there. That's the best way to describe it. Like, and I mean, everything everything and nothing. You're not thinking of anything, but everything is there. And so you could call it in a, in a sensation, you could call it peace. You could call it, um, what else have I, I guess I could call it peace, calm, uh, Zen bliss. I mean, there's so many ways to downgrade the sensations, but there all states, which I think it's hardest to communicate to everyone, is that these are all states that somehow you know you're not just aware of. I'm not saying godlike, but I'm saying that you can control them. You can sense that you're not just there, that you're a part of it. And as you're breathing and maintaining all this, I can sense uh, control. And I don't mean to feel safe or to feel powerful or to feel pleasant. I mean, you feel connected to very untangible states that I don't know how else to describe what those states are, but you feel like you can move in them. And that's as far as I could describe to you in a relatively short amount of time what do you think Uh, these states are do you think that it's a multi-dimensional experience do you think it's imagination um do you think it's part of our journey returning to whatever source we came from yeah i think um based on my research it's definitely we, we all have stored genetic memories. And, and again, some people chalk it up to mechanical instincts, like, you know, fight or flight. And uh, we've learned things over thought tens of thousands of nomadic years. Don't go in the dark cave, you know, run up the basement steps, be afraid of what's behind you. Don't let the spider bite. I think uh, it's more complex than that. I think that's us at like absolute basic 10 to 14% consciousness. I think that if we were 
yeah, it's very primitive the way that we access those memories. And so when they come back to us in these higher functions, this is where we blur the understanding of our ancient advanced human past. We put labels on it exactly like this. It's either mystical or spiritual, not saying it's still not, but it's, we, we have such a base crude understanding of our abilities. It's, you know, again, an iPad would look magical depending on where you were. Nanobots would definitely be, you know, wizard stuff in the past. You know, if, if you conquered up and flicked your fingers and something started being built out of thin air, it would look like magic. But here we are with these abilities where your recall into your genetic memories, are they my memories? Are they within the collective human consciousness? And I'm externally accessing that consciously finally i'm consciously connecting back to something that would have been like yeah it's no big deal it's collective human consciousness duh you know there there are there there might have been a time where it would have been uh yeah it, it just would be something that was natural it would have been uh yeah i don't know i think that if you're going to uh, I want, I wouldn't label the experience. I wouldn't, um, try to direct where you go with it because of a preconceived, like, well, I believe I'm connecting to mm-hmm. my past, or I believe I'm, uh, it's a paranormal or dimensional thing. I think we're way too, those are all things that we should be aware of. But I feel like that's a conclusion to jump to that is irrelevant to the experience. And the experience is going to unlock, like we should keep it on the table as like, hey, one theory is that it's an interdimensional experience. But we should, or it's a paranormal experience, or it's a past life experience regression. Um, I think you should shelve, like keep it out as a theory but let the experiences keep speaking for themselves and find others that have had their own. And it's not about comparing what they specifically connect to. It might be the process, how they connect. And those are the things that we might be able to get more out of than saying, well, your experience is true or not true, or it is a dimension or it isn't a dimension. Mm -hmm. I think we're too early in the game to, to actually get an answer on that, to say what it is. I mean, to me, it feels like, a. am not going to say familiar. It feels when you're in this state and you're doing this, Gary, it's a lot like, um, it feels like, it feels like if you're like, okay, so I, I, a lot of people might know that I've done historical remodeling, design build. I, I try to do it in a more consciousness way now with uh, right down to sounds and frequencies and essential oils and your brain entrainment. And I talk about all that and just, and I'm thinking like either an auto mechanic, an airplane mechanic, or a, a, a craftsman that, you know, does fine furnishings or, uh, the kind of restoration remodeling we do. And there's a suite of tools, you know, you keep a set of tools and you keep your tools organized in different buckets uh, and or containers for specific tasks or, or just general tasks. You know that if you have these two, three buckets, everything's covered depending on what you're up to. And you might have to run to a big box retailer, but you got everything you need. And I feel like we're on the precipice of techniques like this Wim Hof thing 
or Steve Severinsen, I haven't mentioned him at all. I don't do specifically, I've done a lot of research on him. The man holds uh, many world records. He is uh, also from the uh, same area that Wim Hof is from, not city, but he's someone else who has a PhD in this research and breathology is someone else that I have to mention him because the guy sat on one breath in freezing water uh, for 22 minutes. And it's a, it's not like Wim Hof is the only one doing this just for everybody out there. And so I think that getting back on the, the dimensionalness of it and what it really means, I think what we need to do is just table everyone's experiences and see which ones are collectively similar. What's similar about the experiences? What's, uh, what are the techniques in manifesting in individuals? How is it? What are those revelations as a collective now from that? Meanwhile, how we're experiencing our, our past per se in quotes lives or these connective statuses are terminology that just doesn't get us across the finish line. I think it just confuses things more than it should. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that, that this also connects to some of the, I don't know what the word would be, ancient. The practices that have been like shamanic type of practices, like walking on hot coals or piercing or, you know, you've seen, like I've seen people, you know, pierce their skin with like meat hooks and hang off the ceiling and things like that. Like, is that all sort of like in the same family? Did you say meat hooks? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? No, no. No, tell me more. People people will take like meat hooks and and pierce them through their back, like down their their back. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then somebody will pull them off the ground and they'll be suspended in the air hanging off of these meat hooks and he won't feel it. Yeah. I've seen that. I, I've seen that actually live. I've always wanted I've to actually, try that. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, ow. you wouldn't do um, it. Yeah. I'll watch. I'll film. You'll film. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, Oh, um, I guess, I mean, the answer to the question is how does it, well, I guess your question originally was how does all, how, how does that sort of stuff relate? Yeah. I I think it's, it's all sort of connected, you know, like, um, like you can use a different type of car to get to the same place. Yeah. I, I think this chalks up to the whole, uh, the blinky board uh, where you're doing uh, uh, again, a thousand years, you bang on the board. It turns yellow on the left. It turns red on the right. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes along a thousand years later and says, that's a 747 control panel and you're in the cockpit and somebody goes blasphemy and it's the blinky board and, and the ritual, there's this ritual around it and it blinks, it blinks orange and it blinks red. The reality is that whether it's like, this technique I'm talking about or another one or uh, some sort of peyote or ayahuasca or chemical induced conscious state, uh, you could make an argument that we're all banging on the blinky board. Mm -hmm. We're like 10 to 15% conscious. So like 85 to 
90% of the genetic technology that we are, we are all just jump starting a technique that we did not know uh, we had. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, so it, it really is a possibility that no matter how we're doing this, that it's, uh, um, this is a, uh, I guess the best way to put it is just exactly that, that we're, we're jumpstarting and reactivating um, stored dormant abilities that the best we have right now is, hey, learn this one technique and try breathing. Mm -hmm. And then how did that work out for you? Or how did that work out for you? And then from there, it's like, okay, what does, what does that look like for, um, you know, again, fill in the blank, you know, what did that look like for um, your experience? And then at some point after you and I, and everybody has maybe tried it out or, or done it a bunch of different ways, there's a collective switch that goes off and we realize, oh, we were, we were all just banging. We should have been hitting switches or, or turning dials. And instead we were just banging on the control panel. Right, we're, just and, hitting, we're hitting different things to see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And then, and, and that's, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the danger. If you find one ancient piece of high technology and your secret society has been using it as a, as a, as a, as a, a blood go uh, goblet, you know, you're an idiot. You know, you guys have been, you guys have been holding on and getting a reaction or now maybe, maybe the battery finally died in this ancient piece of technology. And you think it has to do with your mystical traditions that it has to do with the way you guys have been cutting up a goat or fill in the blank animal or sacrifice of some kind that this is why this thing has been doing this. It's like, you've been getting a response out of it, but it's, it could have been an energetic uh, response. It could have been a nanotechnology. It could have been uh, the magnetic and or the electromagnetic currents and fields of the energy of X, Y, and Z fill in the blank. And again, your your actual understanding of the technologies that you're kind of using uh, is not the truth of the technology that you have been burning people at the stake for. Right. You, you know what I like what I picture in my mind as we're having this conversation is like uh, when a baby's born, you know, the doctor will slap it on the ass to make it start breathing because it doesn't, you know, to make it take that first gasp. And, and that's why I kind of feel like, like some of these methods are kind of are, they're kind of like a way for us to kind of smack ourselves in the, into back into breathing and, and into consciousness. Yeah. It, I, I also feel you know? at, yeah, there is a part of this, I think all has to do with the number of human beings on the planet that I'm not saying just randomly make more human beings. I'm also, but I am saying that it's cliche, but we need to value every human being on the planet uh, they collectively are part of a consciousness that is creating, I think, the the RAM and the collective human consciousness available so that other people can have breakthrough ideas and revolutionary thoughts and, re and reactivate or be the one that reactivates some human ability that we didn't know we had, but we do. And we have used it in the past. And it's not just one or two special people that we all have these uh, connected connect uh, activity abilities that we have uh, dormant 
uh, specific gene responses that maybe mm -hmm. I have one more uh, based on my prior uh, gene, just my genes have a prior list of, I don't, I don't believe like the disc array deal. I don't believe every single one of us are individually and unique just because we're individual and unique, but that it's actually a necessary programming to keep the disc array fed in case any particular one goes down. Do you think if everybody bangs on this blinking board at one time, it'll actually stay on? Well, that's, I think, what people have been doing with these collective calls to prayer, collective calls to uh, everybody meditate, uh, you know, the power of eight sort of deal. The uh, idea that if we collectively, on that collective human consciousness, choir, uh, sing simultaneously, that if we can't switch it on, we can all splash uh, at the ocean in one direction and we can create a, a collective wave, you know, or a collective response that is measurable uh, towards, you know, our most optimistic, of course, during these worldwide meditation or prayer events is to um, have a, a, a material, conscious, uh, recordable, response. I mean, we would like to be able to say, hey, you know, 5 billion people all prayed at this particular instance on this particular thing or meditated on this particular thing. And, and, and the effect was on that thing. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely recorded instances, whether it's just a few people praying over somebody with a disease or an ailment or a, or a situation that they didn't think was going to be switched. You know, there are definitely divine, uh, divine, there are definitely, uh, unexplainable cosmic experiences that show uh, what like a lot of people would like to do is chalk it up to some kind of divinity and which is fine. It's just, uh, again, let's just reserve not skepticism, but insight facts. Just uh, if something happens, I mean, we know there were experiments being done in quantum mechanics uh, 20. Uh, this is in the, this is like early eighties. They were doing experiments uh, measuring effects at the quantum level on a particular quark. Uh, again, theoretical model, this particular quark uh, within an atom reacted and the largest, most unified simultaneously experienced event in our world is football, the world football world soccer cup uh, for those that want to call it soccer. The reality is that when you have that many hundreds of millions or billions of people simultaneously watching a game, there was a measurable response at, at, a, at a quantum level. And that's just one experiment of one particle, theoretical at that. But the point is there was a measured response. So it sounds like a yes. And that, and that sort of swings right back to the ancient civilizations. They probably, do you think that that's what they were doing? That's how they accomplished what they did? That's how they engineered the soil, created the polygonal construction, the standing stones, and whatever else we're, we found and haven't found yet? Yeah, I... I do. I do think that there is a, uh, 
I think that certain things that we chalk up as mystery abilities like synesthesia, you know, we've talked about, we touched mm-hmm. on a little bit, yeah. but uh, the, the five senses that we are aware of uh, that we think that are related to just those senses where numbers and colors and colors and sounds or sounds and colors and uh, dimensional space within what we, our mind's eye, not just the world we see through our eyes, but actually um, experiencing smells and sounds and sensing other people's touch, like watching two people shake hands and or hug and you can feel literally being hugged or felt uh, there there are so many weird things about these abilities and we've known about them the greeks knew about synesthesia and i think that's within the suite of genetic powers that are not accidental i think they were well programmed i think they were well managed i don't think we had the issues we do now and again it's a huge scope width and breadth of it all it then goes into rediscovered work like anthony holland's work uh which you can witness in a ted talk from 2008 i mean they're literally using using vibrational frequency machines to destroy MRSA, uh leukemia cancer other cancers and bacterias and viruses and they're doing it with sound and i don't think that's a first time that was that was Anthony Holland picking up Royal Rife's work. And this is all ancient work. I don't think that our abilities were limited to just sight, sound, touch, feel. I think they were projectable that they were, you know, again, you show up to work and instead of needing a tape measure, you uh, could cut and sand a giant polygonal construction block because you just buffed away until you saw no more purple while you listened to your favorite Led Zeppelin album. Mm. And the, the music projected the colors of what the architect's intent, intent was or the, the measurement of the site itself and what you were building was not related to a set of external archeological or architectural plans. I think that, and, and that's just one example, the idea of sitting in a giant Greek uh, outdoor amphitheater and watching a play where you can sense, smell, taste, and see all the feelings of the show that's going on before your eyes. And for those watching, maybe even from a distance, from not a theatrical uh, stadium seat, but from somewhere else that they could envision and feel and sense the entire thing happen from um literally anywhere on the planet uh we're we're not you know we have very we have all very limited experiences with not only the new technology but how much we know about each of these technologies and then how we experience those technologies Mm -hmm. so it it would be very interesting to be able to create uh, and I've been thinking about this and I'm, I'm going to do this a little bit with my site is to continue to create a space for people to be aware of these different anomalies and, or phenomena or uh, you know, however you want to put it, but to be conscious of it and to continue to encourage people out there listening to share their personal experiences or ask people, uh, there's the thing, don't assume that it's uh, an enlightened uh, multi-dimensional human being. I, mm-hmm. I think that, people need to be aware that they're very practical auto mechanic uh what the, or pragmatic uh next door neighbor 
might or their brother or sister or mom or dad, somebody they think like, oh, they don't have situations like that. They don't have synesthesia. They don't. I would start asking the people around you that, and, and particularly people you don't think are, you know, they may not know anything about an alien or ancient uh, high technology or or standing stones or ruins and Stonehenge. They might not know anything about that, but they might be able to tell you about a time where they swear they tasted, uh, you know, they, they watched somebody have a drink of something and they could completely taste what that person was drinking. Um, or they, you know, they're like simple little shadowy things like that to very complex right. experiences and spaces. It's, it's uh, these are all, I think more and more and more present because I think there is a total collective consciousness that's kind of firing into our us as individuals, mm -hmm. but it's more like static electricity. Do, do you think, um, you know, again, the, you know, I, I wonder like, you know, how did we put ourselves into safe mode? And when we talk about some of this stuff, like I, it's almost like, uh, you know, um, it's like breaking to me. It sounds like we, like somebody took our antenna and broke it off. You're like breaking the, the yeah. antenna off of a TV set, so we can't pick up the signal anymore. And um, you know, one of the theories out there is, is about the pineal gland being that antenna. Yeah, I wonder. So, if this is the argument I had with myself about title of my book. It's not aliens worse. It's us. The the, the, the worst part is uh, after all these millions of years or tens of thousands of years of human occupation and living, it appears that a very advanced group of humans, and I'm not saying all the experts are the best or the most noble, a bunch of them made it, they survived some catastrophe and they live quite easily, I think, here on this planet still, and we just identify them as aliens. And, and the question is, in the last... Uh, since the younger drives or even maybe I think actually before 12,600 years ago, I think whatever went wrong probably went wrong at that 50,000 year mark. Mm -hmm. So I think, and I'm not just saying that uh, we've talked a little bit about the city off of Cuba. I use that as a yeah. domino point and that's just a domino point. But I think that I wonder if in the past they directly tried to help us and they're like, well, this work, this didn't work. So it's like, let's try this. And it's like, oh, great. We tried to help them. And then uh, 10 million of them murdered 30 million of them. And every time we try to help, we just make it worse. Let's not, let's, let's let them evolve on their own. But then every now and then, oh, it looks like they're about to pick up a technology. They're not, oh boy, it'll be like, let's just break the antenna a little more. And like, the question is, is there a group of humans that, they don't really help us or they're, they're actually not really in charge. Like a lot of the assumptions is that, Oh yeah, there's some super advanced humans that work with the highest levels of all governments and they they're involved in benevolence. They're involved in trying to shape and help us. And I don't know if that's true. That's the problem. Is it worse? Are they really not helping us? Are they, are they actually uh, hindering our development? Do we, do we end up, uh, going too fast for them. And at some points they're just, Hey, uh, let's just have them trip and fall here, you know, mm -hmm. time for a new, uh, dark age. And, and then we get set back a little bit. And that, that, that is a massive question that I think along with some of these others we have, 
we have we have two roads to go down for everyone listening is one immediate personal self-experimentation from diet exercise some sort of like activating meditative technique like i'm talking about and then also knowledge and the information uh to uh uh just be aware that our past is much more complicated than what we think it is. And that should affect some of these experiences you're having. Uh, they don't need to change your belief system, like spiritually, but you need to be aware that, wow, I'm a much more complex creature. And maybe I'm experiencing this thing, not because it's a mystical thing I won't ever understand, but maybe I just reactivated this synesthesia and this this my particular experience of it and my particular abilities and it's connected this this and this and it's still broken in gosh knows how many different ways but here's this new thing that i'm experiencing and feeling and oh it just happens to tie into the fact that it turns out we used to all be able to do this <laughs> and yeah well wow then there's a network out there and right. i could probably connect with more people and then um uh, i think it's important to create those connections but it's also important to uh, go at it individually and learn where you're at with it and keep trying new things and also uh, work on things that work. Right. And that makes sense because, uh, I mean, the collective us is made out of individual uses. <laughs> so, yeah, and it seems like it just seems so like it almost seems stupid that we have to say that, but, <laughs> but it's true. It's, it's true. And it's also that everyone out there is at a different point in their journey in reference to what they're experimenting with, what they, they probably already, I'm saying this specifically so people can shift their own paradigms. They might not think that they're self-experimenters, but they really are. You're not, you're not your job. You're not just your one expert field. You're not just a violinist. You're not just a musician of some kind. You're not just an artist. There's a, oh yeah, well, I'm a mom and I'm a dad. No, 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 nothing that simple. But those are good points, but the, not that simple. You are just not the one thing you've become good at, you know, you're, you're, or the one thing that you think you can speak to. There are sensations and, and groundings and your, your personal, individual, energetic, actual physiological, energetic pin on the planet and in this universe is unique and necessary. And it's a dividing rod, not just for personal experience, but for this connected complex network that we're, we're just, we're literally walking on, we're literally walking on the blinky board. Right. I, th I think that's one of the things that I've actually seen kind of change in my lifetime is a lot of people, at least more than I've ever seen have gone from, you know, being a parent or a factory worker or a mechanic or this or that. And, and people, I think now are starting, starting to, to, to view their life themselves and their experience as more of a, an, a, uh, an experiment in consciousness and awareness. Yeah. This, I, uh, I'm just, I know we're supposed to be doing an interview for everyone. And I'm just thinking about where we're at with all this. It's just like, it's just so exciting. It is. It's, it's, it, cause, because that, I mean, I, when I think back as a kid, people didn't think like the way we were thinking now. Yeah. I, I can't believe either when I thought, you know, I was always interested in archeology. span I was always interested in uh, archeology span and dinosaurs and, 
uh, history came first about that, but I had zero interest in uh, Stonehenge. I had zero interest in these large megalithic ruins. They were just like, oh, that's just people in loincloths built those. That Those aren't a big deal. I wanted to do Indiana Jones stuff. I just, I really wanted to find the golden statues and the Ark of the Covenant and, you know, defeat, you know, I wanted to do all that stuff. But then uh, these weird terms that we're supposed to ignore, prehistory. <laughs> well, <laughs> prehistory. So we had history. Then we had prehistory sometime after the Jurassic dead dinosaur period. And then we had history. So what, how does that work? But yeah, I, th- I, I don't know if... Uh, you know, based on the way that we're even like, again, we, the way we've related to the subject in the past has been incredibly, um, it's blinding. It truly is um, muting to choosing no matter what you do for a living in your spare time to try something as simple as a breathing technique, uh, to learn about past, to speak and think outside of an agreed upon tribal paradigm. Uh, you might not think it, but we are. Uh, it depends on your affiliations, uh, spiritually, religious, uh, institutions of learning. There are ways that people pigeonhole themselves into methodologies rather than they become stuck in some form of legalism instead of the contents of the facts. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's an interesting time to live and there's a lot more for to, to look into. Yeah. And this is how we continually crush an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so again, before we yeah. wrap it up, who are you? Where can my listeners find you? Uh, Jared Murphy author of it's not aliens worse it's us discovering our lost history you can uh, of course get it on amazon but if you want to get a signed copy which i actually sign and send out for each of you that is and and if you are out of country we have to talk about shipping because i send it personally and i have to start telling people this because i've had some awesome fans from literally all over the earth want the book and it's not cheap to send things to australia and england and you know like i could get it cheaper on amazon yeah because it's coming from the factory where they printed it probably 10 blocks from you and I uh, I sign the books and I send them from notaliens.com. And as you pointed out earlier, I'm excited about my new member area. I'm expanding it. I'm putting on my, uh, I went to uh, Michael Tellinger's Stone Circle in South Africa, but I spent a month doing research in the field. There's a massive unreported ancient civilization in South Africa, but I'm doing uh, my, I do host my own interviews and there will be a lot of great content, but I'm giving, I'm all with with six months or a year, you get a one or two copies of the book, bringing your total investment to about $2 and 65 cents a month for my site. But at the same time, uh, you do get a signed copy of the book or two. You can always just do a monthly thing. And I am also planning new archeological digs, which are hopefully going to come up after COVID ends, we will be continuing. I'm working with an archaeologist and we are planning out some actual field expeditions, which we'll be reporting on first, of course, 
uh, to members, but that's probably not entirely true given that you and I will probably keep talking about it and I'll probably call you while I'm in the field. <laughs> so that, that is, uh, you know, and I always keep my show schedule on not aliens. So like right now, you know, when you, when this show posts, I always have direct links to everything imaginable. Uh, tomorrow I'm on, uh, the, the Rogi report and, Oh, nobody's going to know that because this won't be out. So forget that. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I can tell you that I'll have been on Freeman fly and I think I'll be on Greg's show again and I'll have been doing some stuff and conflict radio. You can always find me on conflict radio too. So yeah. there, there, yeah. there's enough. And, and there's a rumor like, out there that you're going to be interviewing the host of everything imaginable. Oh, that 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 can neither be confirmed nor denied and that just makes it more and more mysterious <laughs> because it'll be a chance for people to experience two things jared generally shutting up and you talking i do a lot of talking oh yeah but it'll be it'll be awesome for you to do it on my show and it is going to be just great. listen just just you just and I'm going to uh, plug everything imaginable podcast yeah. for curious minds seven times. Uh, I would, because if where you know, if you're not oh. going to be repetitive, what's the point? Oh yeah. And I might as well plug my book too, while I'm on there. I always yeah. forget, I always forget that I have a book. You do? I do. How do you forget? It's been a while since I wrote it. So I just kind of forget about it. Well, do you think you'd write another one? Um, not right now. I just don't have the time. I mean, if I ever make enough money off the podcast where I don't have to work a day job, then I would consider writing another one. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, it's very just time consuming. A, oh. And it's kind of a lonely endeavor, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely have to make a commitment to sit down and work alone. Um no one's going to get you to the, to the end of the book without sitting down and just knocking out the chapters. Yeah. That's true. But you never know what I might do next. Uh, well, you get to talk about and plug the old book at least seven times. <laughs> and, and by then you should be counting me on for an, or another show. And then we can, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to... Uh, so you have to buy my book now before you interview me. Oh. Is it available on Amazon? It is available on Amazon. Enlightenment Guaranteed. The only book on Zen you'll ever need. Oh. Tell me there's pictures. Tons of pictures. Nice. Yay. <laughs> I got... I got, I got no complaints. There's uh, uh, there's such a, uh, well, how often do you end up getting on and talking about your book? Very rare, actually. What, did you just stop promoting it or? Uh, sometimes I just, like, I just forget that I wrote it. I mean, sometimes they go on a podcast, people will ask me about it and, you know, and I'll talk about it a little bit and, uh, you know, my, my point of view and everything has changed so much since I wrote it that the book only f 
takes on a very, very, like 10% of maybe what I think is like the whole picture now. So it's, it's, it's almost like an incomplete work, very incomplete, because it's, so, it's such a narrowly focused, narrow focused book. Hmm. Well, it's not a simple, I know, I think people hear the topic and instead of like going, oh, that could be amazing. I think a lot of times it's, oh my gosh, so much anxiety. What if I fail at, at Zen? How, what, how, who am I if I fail at being Zen? <laughs> you can't fail at Zen. That's, that's what we kind of find out when you read my book. You can't, well, you know, it, it's always there. You just don't see it. See that that therein lies a plug. We've already gotten a couple in. I feel like th this this is exactly like it's your like it's a platform that you have that could promote your book almost every episode. True. Is it it is on my outro. So I do plug it. Oh, that's good. See. Which speaking of, I think we should call this a wrap and I'm gonna play my outro. Oh, I think uh, New Year's has yeah, a uh, resolution. You, you have a party to go to, don't you? Uh, yeah, there is a, uh, yeah, yep. I'm, uh, I'm going to go to a little soiree in, uh, uh, looking forward to it. Are you going to like wear a hat and blow into a kazoo? I've never actually done that. Have you? I have. Oh. Many that should times. be on my bucket list. Yeah, I used to do it all the time. Really? Yeah. Huh. Wow. I uh I I don't know if they're even gonna have any. I know there's gonna be a live band and uh you know, just gonna be a good time, I hope. It has to be a good time. You're gonna be there. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> you can just follow me everywhere I go. And uh, no, this guy's book is amazing. Go to his site, but buy my book first. <laughs> Once you're Zen, get ready to be unzenned at Not Aliens. Yeah. I, I, I think it, essentially we are covering the same topic. I, I think so, but there are just so many, uh, the Rubicon of it, the, uh, the complexities, the dimensions, it's so, it, it's not about, Hey, I'm not getting through to you. You need to hear it this way or that way. I, I do think that there's an interdisciplinary need to study many different people's views and words on it because, it's not as simple as you can get the gist of a song when one person sings it, but if it's supposed to be sung by a choir, you know, mm -hmm. it just sounds different. It seems obvious, but I do think that uh, different books, different stories, different um, uh, even exercises and meditations and food, all of it drive down a path where you learn in a way that you've never experienced or would have if you only stuck with one discipline. And I'm not saying don't develop something you're passionate about and constantly switch stuff around. I mean, it's it's very difficult for anyone else to say, hey, this this is what you should or shouldn't do. It's just 
there's a lot of things out there to observe and then plugging that in your personal path is has to be a personal discernment it can't just be mine or yours or whatever it's got to be everyone's got to make their everyone has to be first and foremost their own advocate yeah. and their own their they have to yeah i got i don't like it when people say that my way is the only way that's bs people have to experiment and really find out what works best for them yeah they do it's it's just I wish it was common sense. I wish it was self-evident. I wish everybody was in a place to discern, to at least to be safe and discern anything. Mm-hmm. But it, it just isn't. It, it just isn't. And it's going to, uh, yeah, I don't know. Your, um, it sounds like your plans for New Year's are almost as good as mine. I mean, I not, could go the completely other direction. <laughs> hey, nacho. Yep. My wife was my wife was happy when she she sent me a text asked me for what I wanted for dinner and I said nachos, she's like yes. <laughs> happy New Year's. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of good. Uh, I don't know. There's a there there there's a lot of. Uh, I'm gonna say, at least from what I've seen in the news already, there's a lot of different weirdness going on right now with did you see the uh daily news out of wuhan china oh oh there there's millions celebrating new year's oh that's great together mm-hmm. <laughs> in the street yeah well, they, they've kind of done a better job than we have i think uh yeah i'm uh i just like the fact that we've oh i'm not no We've done a whole podcast without me talking about it. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. I, this is great. Happy New Year's, even though no one's going to hear that this was the last show for another week of 2020. Right. But but they'll, they'll remember it. Uh, just, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm, unless I'm they the, drink too much, then you won't remember it. No, but that's why it's going to be on a podcast and you're going to throw it out there. And this is it. This is my capstone to 2020. This is the end of it. My next podcast, which I guess is tomorrow, will be 2021. Yeah. So you enjoy those nachos and I'll enjoy a short jaunt to a live band and I'm, I was never that person, by the way. I was never the one to go out. I, I honest to gosh, really prefer your idea of New Year's. Really? I don't, I don't like going out for New Year's. You don't? Do you drink? Uh, not. I do enjoy my scotch. I do like scotch. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like uh, very dry cider, and I do happen to like Irish cream, a ton, mm. uh, too much. But uh, those are my preferred drinks. But I'm also really into mezcals. Uh, so despite oh, yeah. me saying I don't drink much, just because I like a variety does not mean I like a quantity. Right. So, so, so do you get drunk, take off your shirt, dance on the table? Never have. No, no. I, uh, so I have a severe allergy to nuts. And then I was told for a long time that I couldn't drink. And I had tried a beer when I was 15, 14. And, uh, 
it swelled up my throat and I didn't realize till I was 21 that it wasn't the alcohol, wasn't hard liquor, that it was the likely that I was allergic to the yeast that's used to create beer. But I didn't know that I was just told I was allergic to alcohol. So ironically, I bartended for four years and I had never had a drop. Uh, while I bartended, I still did not know I could drink. And it wasn't until I hit my 30s that I uh, started to have like a six pack of cider every couple months. I just, I had spent so many years not being a drinker. I just don't care if I drink or don't. And even though I very much enjoy scotch, uh, Irish whiskey, and uh, uh, well, I like good whiskey, but I tend to lean Irish. And not just because I'm Irish, or at least quite a bit Irish. I'm a little French too, but uh, I, uh, like I said, those Irish creams and stuff like that. So I, there's definitely things I enjoy drinking, but I'm just not. Uh, uh, yeah, just don't really care. So I've never, because of that background in alcohol, I'm one of these weirdos that can honestly tell you, no, I don't get lit. I've never done that. I've, I just, I, I respect anyone who wants to go out and do what they want to do. I just haven't, do you haven't ever been have that to, person. Do, do you ever have to take heat or get mocked by other Irishmen for not drinking <laughs> well, it, as much? Oh, Did well, he ever like, so like sit down at the bar like, what's wrong with you, Jared? You're Irish. You're a lightweight. Uh, yeah, well, there's the irony is that both my sets of grandparents on both sides have a history of alcoholism. So a uh, short story on this one, my brother, my brother said, I can't believe you drink cider now. I've never had a drink with my brother. And this is, I'm in my thirties. And he's like, I, and he's like, I've, I can't believe I've never had a drink with my brother. I want to go out. I want to go out and have a drink with my brother. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so there we were, we go out and we go toe to toe on cider. And, and, and I, my brother's was a pretty fit guy at the time. And I was not, uh, the fittest, but I wasn't like, I wasn't, I don't know. I wasn't like a big guy. Uh, I'm about six, two. And I have, um, you know, maybe, maybe I was 30 pounds overweight, I think at the time. Cause I had been in between like doing different, uh, uh, activities and I, I tend to get really active and then not sometimes or as far as like participating in like long distance like whatever anyway the point is I wasn't particularly like had an advantage over my brother but we both went we both drank a couple uh ciders uh some rather large ciders uh and then uh, he he went home and I got a text from my sister-in-law that said well thanks for sending my husband home drunk. <laughs> and I felt 100%, 100% fine, 100% fine. And I didn't feel a buzz. I didn't feel anything. And apparently my brother's better at, at the time of drinking Crown Royal and uh, Jack and Coke and uh, but I don't know what it was. He said he loved cider and we sat there and we drank and apparently he got drunk and I didn't. And so all I can think is, is that somewhere in my, in my, uh, angry genes is I have the full capability of becoming a raging alcoholic if I wanted, and it would take a lot of booze to do it. <laughs> that's, that's all I think possibly. Uh, well, you are Irish, so you should be able to. 
handle it. Yeah, well, you know, what? I'm surprised. So your brother how many... would be Irish too, though. Yeah, well, like I said, he drank at the time. He drank a lot of Crown Royal, uh, Jack and Coke, or Jack Daniels with something, and then. I didn't drink anything like that. I, I drank cider and it was dry cider. I don't like sweet cider. So it was like, at the time it was English Strongbow. And uh, there was a brand for a long time before they really sugared it up called Woodchuck. That was, they they had, they've like tripled the sugar. It's basically turned into a soda now. It's too bad because man, as a dry cider, it was one hell of a recipe. And uh, so we were just drinking Woodchucks at uh, an old Chicago I mean, very corporate. We just sat down and uh, started going at it. And uh, we um, we left and parted ways. And apparently I had a tolerance and he didn't. So I don't know if it just wasn't uh, whiskey and that he wasn't used to it. But ironically, I just, people are like, well, have you tried drugs? And it's like, no, because uh, I'm allergic to mushrooms. I'm allergic to nuts. And I'm, I'm pretty much not having a good time with secondhand smoke. I mean, I got used to it as a bartender, but I'm not around any of this. So I'm like, okay, what's the, uh, uh, I'm, I don't know. I guess I'm just like indifferent to the whole drinking culture. Personally, I don't feel left out of it. I don't feel like I've lost anything, but you couldn't have told me nine ish years ago that I would get into a scotch group and that I would find drinking turpentine and lamp oil delicious. And I, I have apparently now taken quite a liking to a range of scotches, uh, and definitely enjoy it. And chartreuse, I'm a big chartreuse fan, the green, of course. And, or I know there's others from France and Belgium that I can't, I know that we can't get here or, or are not frequented in the States. There's just, you know, people like, oh, the yellow or the green, but it's the green, of course. I'm a huge fan of chartreuse, but, uh, and again, just recently getting into the mezcals, like uh, 400 Conejo and, and literally bunny, you know, it's 400 bunnies, mm-hmm. 400 Conejo. And I can't believe it. That stuff's really good. And uh, I, I never thought I'd be a, uh, I never thought I'd be a, a tequila drinker, but if it comes to mezcals, if you get the, and I, I like a lot of ranges of scotch, but I, my favorite is Lagavulin 16 or 12 year. And uh, I, I don't just like smoky peaty scotches. I, I do love the gamut of scotch, but uh, again, I just, I'm perfectly fine if we don't drink for a long period of time or, at all, I'm not thinking. Boy, it's been two weeks since I've drank. It's just not in my paradigm that way. Hmm. I'm more of a Mad Dog 2020 type of guy. Ah, uh, some old Milwaukee PBR ASAP. Black Label. I used to drink Black Label beer. Oh, uh, is that anything like Dragon's Milk? Uh, I don't know. I just know it was it was cheap. It was like six dollars a case. Oh wow. Really? Yeah, it was cheaper than <laughs> old Milwaukee. <laughs> oh, uh, that's crazy. Because, you know, at, being in Minnesota, there's a, uh, I pass by it daily is the giant Grain Belt Brewery building. Uh, you know, we had Grain Belt beer that was from here. Uh, Summit Pale Ale is from Minnesota. A, a, the pig, well, St. Paul used to be called Pig's Eye. Uh, so we have the Schmidt uh, Brewing Company. Uh, they had a big factory right down on the river and they, they, they made pig's eye beer. And uh, 
what else is from around here? Old Milwaukee wasn't too far. Schlitz. Uh, um, trying to think of some of the, you know, between Wisconsin and Minnesota, you know, we were kicking out quite a few beers. But yeah, uh, I could never partake because they would make my throat <clears> scratchy <throat> and itchy because I have an allergy. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, beer just makes you pee anyway. Uh, well, I I can just thank everybody for uh, whoever did. As far as the cider goes, it got me off. Of, I was still <laughs> drinking. I was drinking soda, and uh, cutting out the cutting out soda when I started drinking cider. It wasn't like a one for one. Like mm-hmm. I said, I I might have a six pack for it could be in the fridge for over a month, but instead of drinking soda, I, I started gravitating towards cider and that eventually I just stopped drinking other, uh, sodas. Right. I just, yeah. Yeah. I, I stopped drinking soda. God, it's probably been 15, 20 years since I've drank like soda. I can't stand it anymore. Yeah. It's not, it's not, uh, I could never go back. Gosh knows I drank my fair share of Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper. Mm. Um, I can't count Coke. I mean, I drank Coke like water too. I mean, my dad was a huge Coca-Cola. He grew up with Coca-Cola. Yeah. I drank Pepsi. Oh. I mean, because that's what suicidal tendencies drank. (laughs) Is that a thing? What? The is band? that actually a thing? Yeah. Yeah. You ever hear that song? It's by Suicidal Tendency. All I wanted, um, he's like, all I wanted was a Pepsi. And he ends up in the, in, like, an insane asylum. It's a really funny song. I'm going to have to re-listen. <laughs> all right, man. Well, well thanks. Well, happy, yeah, thanks happy for having New me Year. On. Yeah, Happy New Year to, to you. If you're not thirsty now, I think you will be. You might have to go grab a six-pack. Well, I don't drink. I just drink tea and coffee. Okay, better, better yeah. choices. Yeah. Which I can't, I can't do the alcohol because of the epilepsy. Well, I feel like if we had more time, the next show could be about that. Do you take your shirt off and whip it up and get pretty crazy? I feel like there might be some stories there for me if I ask you on the next oh. show. One time, I woke up in the back of a car in Philadelphia with people I didn't know. Um, I definitely have a topic idea now for when you get on my show. So <laughs> let's happy new year. Happy new year. I'll play the outro. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, 
and subscribe.